I'm Carlo Pignataro and you are listening to a new episode of Lux and Tech. Are you a thinker or a feeler? I mean, do you draw your conclusions about the world, its future, and the future of humanity based on what you see around you and feel about it, or on larger data? For example, did you know that the world today is greener than it's ever been? That it's also more peaceful than it's ever been before? And that the number of children starving to death, still too high, has decreased over 99% over the past 50 years? If you find yourself having a pessimistic view of the future, you are likely to be like 60% of the population, a feeler, someone who relies on emotions rather than reason, and you may underestimate the power of innovation, the greatest resource of all. Let me share with you a piece of information I'm sure will make you think. The physicist John Zeman has estimated that for every scientific document or scientist that existed in 1670, there were 100 in 1770, 10,000 in 1870, and 1 million in 1970. Mind-blowing, isn't it? At the end of his study, Zeman concluded that the global scientific activity doubles every 15 years, in a century, this means growing by a factor of 100, which is also called Zeeman's Law. To put it into perspective, a person born in 1980 and dying in 2080, very likely to happen, will personally witness a hundredfold increase in scientific activity and all the innovation that goes with it. That's quite exciting if you think about it. In this episode of the podcast, you will learn many of the 50 super trends that, according to investor, researcher, and author of many books, including the bestseller Super Trends, 50 Things You Need to Know About the Future, Lars Tweedy, will make, and are already making, the world a better place. AI, genetic manipulation, cultured meat, vertical farming, quantum computing, nuclear fusion, self-driving cars, Internet of Things, just to mention a few and in no particular order, are some of the topics I'm excited to discuss with my distinguished guest of today. Lars, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. My pleasure to be there. Hi. I read your book, Super Trends. And I must say, is a, is a very detailed collection of pieces of information that help the reader understand the future, based not simply on scientific evidence, but also historical evidence, to the point that I'd call it an encyclopedia. And one thing that, in my opinion, emerges from your work is some sort of optimism, to the point that you conclude the book saying, overall, it will be a better world. Why? Why do you foresee a better world? Uh, first of all, I, I wouldn't call it optimism. I actually would call it realism. So if, if you look back in history, you can see that on almost any metric that you can choose to follow, things are getting better. Or, and they have been getting better for a long, long time. If you look into the future, of course, you don't have a certain knowledge, but we are aware of a number of emerging technologies that we can expect to start working commercially within the next decades. And they will address a number of issues and make the, the world better. Also, there are some cultural issues in play. 
even though many people think that the world is getting more and more violent, the opposite is true and has been true for many centuries. Stephen um, Pinker wrote, uh, Stephen Pinker is a, a professor, he wrote a book called The Better Angels of Our Nature. It's a, it's a massive book where he goes through all sorts of references and statistics of the behavior of people through through times. And he shows how people are getting more and more civilized and peaceful. So we are getting more wealthy. We are living longer. We are getting more civilized and peaceful. But also there's a lot of concern about whether we shall run out of resources and I argue that we shall never run out of resources because we get better and better at substituting, recycling, and also we use less and less you know, commodities, materials, in order to create a better and better standard of life. Then there are concerns about pollution, and for sure there have been waves of pollution, but in most metrics... It's been getting better consistently for at least 200 years. For instance, if you look, go back to the old description of the Thames in London, it was uh, like a soup that if you, if you fell off a ship into the Thames, you would die of cholera almost immediately, or there was no life at all. Now the life is coming back. The forests are growing everywhere. So people have a much too uh, pessimistic view of where the, the world is going. And uh, this has been addressed by a number of scientists. But if you write a book that says the world is going to go under, you might sell 5 million copies. If you write a book where you say that it's actually going to get better, you sell 5,000 copies because I, apparently that's not where people are mentally. Although I have to say now that I'm here that my book is just an, uh, uh, last week, it was uh, stamped a number one bestseller on Amazon. So there you go. Oh, fantastic. Congratulations. Uh, as people in media say, bad news sell, good news don't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So one thing that I've learned reading your book is that human beings are generally quite pessimistic about the future. And I wanted to ask you, is that because there are more uh, feelers than thinkers? One of the scientists who have studied this best was Hans Rosling, who wrote the book Factfulness. He's also known from TED Talks and so on. He, he was also pointing out again and again that the world is getting better. And he described that there are some built-in psychological features in the human mind that makes many people think like that. But he also tried to explain that many people have their view of how the world is developing from what they learned in school, you know, in basic school. And where they were taught by teachers who had their knowledge, their view of what was going on from what they were taught in basic school. So, so people are, have, have really dated views on what is actually going on. And he did a lot of studies where he asked key clients of major investment banks or groups of scientists. So people who are supposed to be very well informed. He asked them questions about, you know, what do you think is the average long longevity in the world? Or how many people can read and so on? How many, how many children do not go to school in the world? You know, how many percent? And no matter how educated and knowledgeable they were in general, they were consistently way, way too pessimistic. They were not aware of how good, how good the world was. And the numbers they would refer to would be true if you would go back 30, 40, 50 years, but not true anymore. One thing I can recall is that when I was young, there were huge problems with hunger in, in many parts of the world. And you saw these 
on television and in newspapers, you saw very often these pictures of children starving to death. And this still happens, but it has declined since I was born 99%, not 82% or 23%, 99%. And if you tell people this, they get completely baffled. They don't have that impression at all. Out of the 50 trends you have predicted in your book, has anything changed since COVID-19 has appeared? Or has any of those trends lost its momentum? No, COVID has only accelerated some things that I think would happen anyway and which were described, certainly teleworking and e-shopping. But if it has had some effects that maybe not many, and I did not predict, that that is that once people try to work at home and found out it was quite efficient and that they liked it, that they would the demand for summer houses would go sky high. So I live in Switzerland and uh, there's a huge demand for for huts in the Alpine regions. Uh, I'm a Danish national and I, I can read and hear that in Denmark... <laughs> They're just selling summer. That, that was not COVID, by the way. They are, they're selling summer <laughs> houses like mad. So um, that was a, an unexpected uh, effect. But other than that, it was just accelerating what would have happened anyway. I think, by the way, that there's, there's one, one single thing in the book that I already now think that I underestimated, and that is the hydrogen uh, economy, that you start using hydrogen as a, as a fuel. Uh, that's beginning to really uh, look interesting. Speaking of energy and resources, uh, you wrote in the book that uh, humanity has long predicted scarcity. Every time human beings uh, start using a new resource, uh, they predict uh, that uh, this resource will end in a matter of a few centuries, uh, and with that, uh, prosperity and uh, wealth will diminish, whereas it's always been the opposite case. And uh, that's thanks to innovation, right? Yeah, yeah, yes. And I, I have done a TED talk where I do this. Sometimes I do longer speeches where I go through the history of the belief of scarcity. And, <laughs> and it's ridiculous. If you look at a thing like the oil price in the beginning of last century, the American government estimated that there were about, uh, I think with 30 billion barrels of oil in the world. And then in the 1970s, after having the world had burned so much oil, they thought there were about 570 billion barrels left, so much more. And then now they think there's about 1,700 billion barrels left. So while we keep burning the oil, the, the amount that is not burned yet keeps going up and up. And uh, meanwhile, we have these new technologies coming in. So the way it looks now is that peak oil is not far away, but it will not be because we are anywhere close to running out of oil it's just because we have better technologies and it was like oil minister Yamanis famously said many years ago he said the stone age didn't didn't stop because they ran out of stones it was because they found some better tools and this is what is happening again and again in all technologies and of course innovation the new stuff that come is almost by definition surprising because if we knew about it maybe it would work already there are some exceptions to that but exceptions to that but uh, we can just look back in history and see it happens all the time and if we if we stay on energy for a little while um, there are 
now we have wind and we have solar power and both of them have become uh, cheaper uh, at an amazing speed and especially solar power the the unit price has dropped dramatically and also we have uh, learned how to to integrate it seamlessly and invisibly into buildings and so on but there are even more dramatic uh, technologies in the pipeline to me the ultimate one is fusion energy where you merge you fuse deuterium and tritium so people have been working on that since the 1970s and there's a, a success factor that they use in the industry and that is the product of temperature and pressure and time and that has been following now for 50 years as kind of a, a Morse law that it doubles every 1.8 years and so in 1970s, they were incredibly far from achieving anything that could be commercially available. Now, if, if we look at this Moore's law, if that continues, we will reach the point where it works in four years from now. And that's, that's really interesting. Wow. Now, what happens once they can demonstrate that they can have sustainable fusion is that then they have to go from experimental reactors to to some that are easy to maintain and that can take 10 or 15 years but we just need to know that we have so much deuterium and tritium on earth that we would be able to power everything air condition elevators cars boats whatever for probably more than 1 billion years so many, many times longer than the, than mankind has uh, existed. So it could very well be that uh, 20 years from now, we begin to convert the entire world energy supply to that. And there's no, it, they, these things cannot blow up. They produce minimal radiation in the shell, but the waste product is helium, which is completely harmless. Actually, we use helium to blow up balloons for children's parties. So. That's how harmless it is. And it's not the only one. There are, there are works going on with thorium, which is kind of an interim technology, which is not fusion, but fission, where we would have enough for a hundred thousand years approximately. And these reactors cannot blow up either. Uh, they can be made so small that they can, they can, you can have one in a train or one in a boat or one in a neighborhood. So uh, this is an ex excellent example of how we address things. There's another one I think is symptomatic of what is going on, and that is with fertilizer. So with farming, we ran into the, you know, when farming was introduced about 12,000 years ago, we ran into the problem that when you consist consistently remove dead plants from a field, you will need nitrogen. And then eventually the, the growth uh, declines and in old age people will be nomads, they'll just move on. Um, now the first solution to that would be to take what you call that uh, from the cows, cow dung, and, and, and put it back on the fields. So the cows eat the grass, uh, you put the, the, the dung back and then the nitrogen gets back or something gets back. But then that was not enough. And then they found guano, which is uh, bird shit on some islands around the world. Uh, by the way, the reason America claims the rights of so many islands in the Pacific is that they made a guano law. They said that everybody who found an island uh, that had guano could claim it for the United States. So they, you know, people were sailing around and finding Gu guano islands. But there were, even though some of them had hundreds of meters of bird shit on top of them, that would also run out. 
But then some Germans found out that you can actually extract uh, nitrogen from there. And this is a chemical process, and about 1% of the world's energy consumption is used for doing that. But this, this can go on forever because you extract it from there, it goes into the, into the plants, uh, eventually goes back into there, and then we use some energy to do the whole thing over again. So that could uh, seem like the final solution. But meanwhile, we uh, scientists have, of course, developed other solutions that are even smarter, which is genetically engineering plants so they can extract this nitrogen from there themselves. Some can already, so you take the genes that enable them to do, to do that and insert into some other plants, and then you don't need to fertilize at all anymore. So we, all the time, everywhere, we see these processes going on. And this this is a cause for being positive realistically positive on the future. So would you say that the concerns of the environmental activists are not uh, grounded? I, I think many are grounded. Um, there are many specific problems where they point out that this and that is happening. But if you look away from the micro level and look at the macro level, then there are some that deduce that we cannot go on. We cannot go on with growing the wealth and so on. And I think they're very wrong for several reasons. First of all, when people in a society get more wealthy, they get less children. And you are Italian, so in Italy, you certainly have that issue. Uh, the fertility, you know, the average of number of children per woman is way too low to sustain the Italian population. And you see that everywhere in the world, also in Asia, in China, and Chinese populations that live outside China. Whereas if you look at Chinese people who live in Singapore, they have extremely low fertility. Why? Because they're extremely wealthy. So that is one thing. Another thing is that if you look at environmental performance index, which is uh, index uh, calculated by a number of uh, top institutions, all the nations that are on top, which are the cleanest nations in the world, they are also rich. And there's a very clear correlation between wealth and having a clean environment. So we should uh, sustain our economic growth and use the wealth that we have to create scientific solutions, science-based solutions to the challenges that we have. And this is something that is sometimes called being bright green. The other philosophies or approaches that people have is to be dark green. Dark green means that let's, you know, let's move back to old technologies and let's stop economic growth. And I believe that dark green approaches will make the problems much, much worse, whereas bright green brings us the solutions. Then there's a third approach, which is called light green. Light green means that you have no overall approach for the society, but you decide that in your own personal lifestyle, you want to be as responsible as you can. And that's fine, um, but it doesn't really address the big issues enough. We need on a society level to have policies that really address it. And I think technology and wealth are the ways forward. And perhaps surprisingly, the wealthiest countries are the ones that pollute less, although they consume more. Yeah, and it's not only that. So, okay, so that <laughs> there's a counter argument to what you said, but there's an also, also an argument that uh, fortify what you said. So the counter argument is that, yeah, but that's they, that's because what they consume is produced in China and there's a lot of pollution going into how they produce in China. There's uh, certainly an element of truth to that. But the, the, the other argument on the other side of the, of the debate is that 
the technologies that all societies can use to be cleaner are typically developed in the richest countries. So uh, countries like uh, Italy and Switzerland, the United States and so on, develop a ton of, of technologies that are deployed all over the world. For instance, scrubbers for you know coal plants are <laughs> traditionally extremely polluting. But if you put scrubbers, they're not that polluting. And if you, you can even... Uh, extract the carbon dioxide and use added products, it gets even less producing and so on. And these technologies are developed in rich countries. Another very interesting principle I found in your book uh, is that uh, technological innovation is not necessarily sustainable uh, at the beginning of its cycle, but if innovation continues, uh, it will eventually become sustainable. Yes, and that's called the Kutzner's environmental cycle, and it's been studied quite well. And there are some uh, rules of thumb uh, at, that says at which income level, GDP per capita, do you normally have the turning points in different elements? Uh, turning point for the water quality, for the air quality, for the amount of forest cover and so on. So it, it's simply a question of as quickly as possible to get up to the levels of income where all these things turn from getting worse to getting better. And we see that happening very quickly in one country after another. For instance, deforestation was going on everywhere in Europe until maybe a hundred years ago. But now the forests are growing really, really rapidly. And in, in, in all wealthy countries I can think of, the statistics I've seen is that they are getting greener and the whole world is now getting greener. So that there are different explanations for that. But the green biomass in the world is growing at an incredible pace, actually, and has been doing that since 1980. So sometimes you see environmentalists showing a horror vision of the future where we have deserts, you know, growing deserts. But the truth is that we are, we have for a long time been moving to a greener earth and that will continue. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah, and it's, and it, it's anti-intuitive. And by the way, so when you, when we talked earlier about how people have uh, wrong perceptions about whether things are moving forward and backward, there's an interesting approach in studying this where you ask people, how do you think the environment is doing in your neighborhood? And then you ask them, how do you think the environment is doing in the world? And consistently, no matter where you do this, people are much more uh, satisfied with their own neighborhood than with the world. And that means that they can see outside the window in their daily life that a, a reality that is okay, but they imagine that the reality that they can't see is not okay. And they're wrong about that. There's another thing, there's not a, a study approach, but there's there's one big mistake many people make, and that is they think that the world is strictly divided between a small part which is very wealthy and a huge part which is incredibly poor. And that was the reality many, many years ago when I was born. But if you look at the income distribution in the world now, it's far more uh, centered on a huge global middle class. Of course, middle class, you, you know, you, you, we can, can have a, a quite wide definition of what it means to be middle class. But massive amounts of people have been moved from being really poor to being to living in a middle class largely because of china because of the conversion and the policy regime in china but also for many other reasons yeah in africa as well many people are moving out of extreme poverty 
I think the problem in terms of perception is that uh, middle class uh, in the developed countries is uh, suffering of a decrease of uh, purchase power. I'll tell you some, a funny thing about Africa because I uh, now we're talking about the, the book called Super Trends, but I've actually written a book called Super Trends twice. And the first time I wrote in 2009 and it had a different uh, take because it was focused on what to invest in. But uh, when I was doing the new one, at, on some subjects, I went back to the old one just to check what I'd written there. And there I, I had a section about the bottom billion. So the one billion people who are really living in, in very poor areas out of seven and a half. But And there I listed a number of countries that are lost behind. There were nothing, yeah, they have no economic growth per capita. And so I just dragged that list into the new book. Uh, but then I, of course I thought I'd, I'd, I'd better double check. So I went in, uh, just on Wikipedia, the economy of Tanzania, you know, the economy of this and that. And I had to remove half of them from the list because, um, they were not left behind anymore. They were actually growing incredibly fast. Some of them had enormous growth rates per capita. So at some point, a, a country that seems hopeless, certainly the, it clicks and then they get into this self-feeding process of wealth creation. Absolutely. I had a conversation with the previous guest of the show. Her name is Susan Chisti. She's the CEO of the FinTech Circle in London. And she told me how a completely renewed access to credit, uh, based on technology, of course, uh, uh, can uh, take so many countries and people in these countries out of poverty. Microcredit? Yes, microcredit. Uh, that's uh, that's a fantastic phenomenon, especially if you do this collective. I don't know you discussed with that with her, but where you you lend money to a group, for instance, you make a group, you lend money to one person who can then appoint eight other people who can also borrow money, and then in that group, uh, people would feel embarrassed to let the group down, uh, and the one who appoints the other ones know who in the neighborhood or in the family are responsible and who are not. And it's very clever. And it's, uh, it's one of the most efficient methods for creating growth. Another one is to have an efficient system to register ownership. And a lot of studies have been made about that. But if you, if you cannot register a claim to the land you live on, the house you build, the brand you've developed and so on, then people cannot invest. If you cannot register your own identity, you, then you cannot get a bank account, then you cannot transfer money. So, for instance, in India, uh, there's been a, a very important scheme simply to get people registered. So they have an identity card or some kind of electronic identity so they can enter the modern economy. There's another trend that you wrote extensively about in the book, uh, genomics uh, or genetic manipulation. And that's huge because the implications are pretty much everywhere. And, uh, you know, Lars, uh, I was impressed by the fact that uh, there's a big prejudice uh, against the words uh, genetic uh, manipulation to the point that people are scared and try to stay away from that uh, without understanding the fact that, uh, for example, the dog itself uh, is a product of genetic manipulation. Yeah, that's so funny. There are about 160 different dog races, as we call but they all come from the gray wolf. And if you look at a sausage dog and a cantanoir and all the rest of them, they're so different in every, every possible way. And then you realize that this has been, these have been created by humans out of the wolf. Then you can see 
that there is this fantastic genetic evolution going on all the time around us. And it's been going on for a long, long time. Almost everything we eat is completely genetically manipulated. Things like carrots look completely different from the natural product they come from and so on. Some of the products cannot even uh, sustain themselves in nature, in nature, like wheat. Wheat cannot set seeds naturally. So if humans, the human race disappeared, wheat would disappear. I suspect uh, sausage stocks would also disappear. A lot of plants and animals would disappear if we disappeared because they are, have been made by us in an analog fashion over hundreds or thousands of years have we been modifying this thing around us. So another thing is recent studies, our own genome have found that we are actually a hybrid of at least 140 different plants of animals in our genes. <laughs> so how did that happen? That happens through what you call a horizontal gene transfer. So this is almost entirely happening when you get infected by a virus. Viruses, they go into our cells and then multiply in, in our, inside our cells and sometimes they mess with our genes in the process. And so one of the main reasons for cancer is virus infections. But when they are inside the cells and messing with our genes, sometimes they grab a piece of our genome and then they go to another species and insert a piece of the human genome in another species. And in the same way, we have parts of genomes in our, parts of, of, of genomes from other species embedded in our genome. And a part of this of the function of a human being is actually stolen from some other species. So the, the whole concept of genetic development and manipulation is vital to the existence of life on Earth. Without all these uh, genetic transfers, we wouldn't exist. We wouldn't be able to eat enough in, and so on. So what ha what is happening here is that we can do this now with full understanding, great precision. And it has so many implications in terms of health, in terms of resources, in terms of efficiency, energy efficiency, etc. With genetic manipulation, we can vastly increase the productivity per land unit in farming. And this means that we can produce the same amount of food with less land. We've been actually been very good at this make it more compact since the 1960s, but we can continue that uh, dramatically. We can probably not entirely get rid of the issue of aging, but we can probably massively extend the human life expectancy through some genetic means. And uh, I have this horror vision that they, that they come with a final cure against aging two hours after I'm dead. <laughs> and sometimes I think, so I'm, I'm sitting, I'm sitting on a bar and I'm getting a Negroni. I think, okay, Negroni is not entirely healthy. So maybe this, this Negroni costs two hours out of my life expectancy. And I think, oh man, what if that's those two hours? That means I will not live to be a thousand. And then I drink my Negroni anyway. It's, this is massive. And it's important to understand that. We have some examples of recurring technology, of recurring intelligence here. So humans, we are created, you know, we exist because of the code that is in our DNA, but the DNA give instructions to build the brain. 
So the brain actually contains millions of times more information than the DNA that created the, the brain. So this is recurring intelligence. Now, when the brain then creates genetic technology that can modify the DNA, then the thing goes in circles. So we could do anything with ourselves and with other people, but there's never been a case before in the billions of years of history of, of Earth where a, a species has modified itself, modified itself, but we're doing that now. Another example of recurring intelligence is, of course, when software writes software uh, or robots build robots. So these are phenomena that can accelerate the technological development, but they're really mainly accelerating the explosion in intelligence. So Earth is, is a planet that, unlike almost any other planet, has, has had this spontaneous phenomenon where intelligence started building. And we could just see that intelligence will create more intelligence forever, it seems. It's very difficult to see what should stop a continuous growth of the intelligence on Earth and in the universe. Before we move to the technologies that you have mentioned, uh, there is something else I'd love our listeners to understand, uh, and it's the enormous progress that has been made over the past few years uh, in mapping the human DNA and the infinite possibilities or incredible possibilities uh, in terms of curing and preventing diseases that this brings along. It's not only mapping the DNA, but genomics, and then you have epigenomics. You think of uh, genomics like a piano you can play on. Epigenomics is that some of it is hidden, so you can't access it. So it's it's very important to understand how you can change the availability. You can block or unblock some parts of the functions of the DNA. Also, of course, we have to understand proteins. Proteins are insanely complicated, especially how they fold in 3D. Uh, but with supercomputers, we, we can increasingly do that. But when we get quantum computings to really work, which we are not far from, uh, then quantum computers can really uh, model how they, that happens. And when they can do that, they can simulate uh, whole cells. And they can also simulate how a potential vaccine or a potential new nutrition would work or new medicine would work. Can you define quantum computing for the listeners who may not be familiar with the term? A quantum computer is a computer that uses the stages of electrons as storage of uh, information. And to put it very simple, because if you get into explanations of quantum computers, like I do a little bit in the book, it quickly becomes incomprehensible for most people. But what happens with quantum computers is the task that would normally have an, an exponential growth in complexity when seen from point of view of a traditional computer does not have an exponential growth of complexity for a quantum computer. It's linear. And that means things that are really, really complex to simulate. Like if you want to simulate an airflow atom by atom can completely overwhelm even the biggest traditional supercomputer, but can be very easy to address by a computer quantum computer. So in some kinds of calculations, they can be several million times faster than the, the biggest traditional supercomputer. So this is, this is about to, to break through. And by the way, it, it is a technology that just five years ago, many people who are working in it or close to it were extremely skeptical about whether it would ever use, uh, ever work. 
these people now can see that it actually works. I have to tell you, by the way, that co-founder of a company called Super Twins, where we are creating a, a, a timeline for the future. It's, it's, built, it's, it's inspired by ideas in a, in a book, but we are now onboarding thousands of scientists where we ask them, each of them, to uh, come with the key uh, events within their discipline that will happen in the future, and then we ask them when when do they think it will happen. So this becomes dots on a timeline of the future. And then everybody who works within that area can say when they think it happens, so it's kind of, kind of crowdsourced. And then we see uh, some of these events move on the, on the timeline. And we have seen big movements on, within quantum computing, but also within cultured meat. So cultured meat is the idea where that meat doesn't need to grow on an animal. So you you can take you can extract a few cells from an animal. It could be a cow, a sheep, or whatever. It could also be a lion. And then you modify these cells a little bit, and so they can multiply further. And then you grow them in big steel tanks in thin layers with a nourished by a growth medium. And then you can basically grow beef or minced meat or anything you want, sausages without involving any living animals. And when you do that, you can reduce the amount of farmland by something like 98 or 99% farmland dedicated to meat production. And so this is one of the technologies that is really in the process of getting or breaking through. So this and then simulated meat that comes from plants is also breaking through. So if you take a, a country like United States, the, um, the amount of land, farmland that they have dedicated to meat production is about six times the size of Germany. Now, if you can imagine that maybe 40 years, 50, 60 years from now, that all meat in the United States was produced as cultured meat or by plant-based, as plant-based meat. What would you do if you free up six times Germany in the United States? For sure, you'd make national national parks. Uh, you could make fantastic summer residence areas or whatever. Uh, for sure, the forest would grow. I mean, you would have uh, rewilding where wild animals coming back, as we see now in Europe, wolves and bears and so on. So you can do that now. When I'm when I'm at this, what moves on the timeline? There's another thing, and that is vertical farming. First time I heard of of vertical farming. I thought it was bullshit. So vertical farming is the idea that you you have a big hall where you have you you use artificial light and then you have plants growing like on shelves in many layers. And, and then people will say, Yeah, yeah, then we can have farming inside the cities. I thought it was completely ridiculous to have farming inside the cities because transport is so cheap. So I, I thought this was like people who don't really think the, the matter through. But then I realized that there is something called Hart's Law for LED lights. So LED lights gets exponentially cheaper and better all the time at an absolutely incredible uh, pace. And because this happens, vertical farming has gone from being uh, having ridiculously inefficient economy to actually making sense now. And there, there are some advantages about it. First of all, you can you can you have very high turnover. You can harvest you know all the time throughout the year. You can control much better what happens. And there are some now gourmet restaurants that only buy their vegetables from vertical farming because they think it tastes better. That sounds really strange, doesn't it? But I talked about meat before. Now, if we talk about plants being grown that way, 
not in steel tanks, but vertically, because you know they need to have the plant structure and so on. So they grow, uh, they look like they look today, but they grow in another way. Here we can also compress the land use enormously and free up even more land. So my best guess of how the world looks at the end of this century it would be that you will hardly see any farming at all. And we will have you know, much more food than we need available, or we can produce as much food as, as we possibly would like to. Saudi would completely, Saudi, the desert nation Saudi would be completely, with greatest ease, be able to feed itself with vertical farming and uh, cultured meat. So these, as I said, I was skeptical. I, I thought it was bullshit, and I moved from thinking it's bullshit to actually finding it commercially interesting within a few years. And so we see one technology after another, certainly moving on the timeline where people say, oh, this will happen in 30 years or never. And then certainly, boom, it's happening. And my great hope is that we'll see this with nuclear fusion also. Uh, I don't even want to say within my lifetime that, but that within maybe five years, we can, we get to the point where we can say, this is, this is going to be commercially available because now it actually works in test labs. Um, test lab is, wow. is a test sites, I would call it. Lars, allow me to leverage your experience and your intuition as an investor. When do you see vertical farming and cultured meat go mainstream in case our listeners, some of our listeners have an investment idea? Uh, what happens is that the meat industry is, uh, of course, a, a very big uh, industry and they, there's a lots, lots of money in it. And what we see uh, consistently now is that you have these small startup companies that have very different approaches. Some of them have, you, you need blood, for instance, you, if you grow meat, your cultured meat doesn't have blood. So you need to grow cultured blood and add it to the meat in order to give the right taste and, and look and so on. You need to grow the, uh, the growth medium and a lot of things. So it's a whole ecosystem of, of startups that do the different things. And some of the startups, they aim for the luxury marketers and some of them, they want to make dog and cat food, which I think is the obvious place to start. <coughs> but the big players like Dyson Food and so on, they know that they need to be in, in, in this game. So they have no issue at all with feeding money to these startups to face your investors and say you are not doing anything about this is simply too embarrassing. So it's like being a car manufacturer who has no plan for electric or self-driven cars. So of course they have to be there. So the money is there and it's happening. Uh, the ecosystem is building up. And I think that within, uh, as I can see on our timeline, within three or four years, it will start appearing really for consumers. How long time it takes before it really, really starts to take over is, is hard to say. My guess is 15, 20 years or so before it really becomes mainstream. Another technology you wrote extensively about in the book, uh, uh, which is probably also the most discussed technology today and one of the most misunderstood, uh, is artificial intelligence and the uh, automation processes that, that uh, go with it. Uh, I have the impression that, uh, despite the fact that uh, pretty much everybody talks about it, uh, only a few grasp uh, the essence of what artificial intelligence is about and what it can do to keep transforming uh, the world we live in. 
Yeah, so artificial intelligence, when you talk with people who are working with this, they often say it's really simple. It's just the same, some small algorithms that just keep processing the same thing again and again. And the way they do it starts to remind a bit of how the human brain works. Artificial intelligence is particularly interesting because you can get something out of it that you didn't put in. So the, there's a, for instance, there's saying in traditional computer modeling, if you put bullshit in, you will get bullshit out. You can make a, a macroeconomic model to model for society. If you put in the wrong assumptions in the model, it will put out the, the wrong uh, conclusions. Now with artificial intelligence, you, you create the system that is able to find out by itself and what it, even if you don't understand the essence of a system, it might figure that essence out and produce good results. So one of the biggest challenges is to be able to understand what was it that it figured out. If it is able to solve an issue that we could not solve, how does it do it? So um, there's a lot of work going on there. But I think the I mean, it's kind of, it, everybody would say the same, that artificial intelligence is such a big game changer for society because it will massively accelerate the development of intelligence overall. There is, I, I just want to say to anybody who's interested in the subject and who has a Netflix account, that there's a, a nice little documentary series, I think it's called AlphaGo, which is about uh, when artificial intelligence developed by Google at, 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 the, at the first time challenged a grandmaster of Go, which is the most complicated board game in the world. And there is uh, one point in, in this where you have all these people, experts, you know, in Asia, you have these people who are doing nothing but commenting on Go games like you have on football in, in Europe, for instance. And at one point, it has to make a move, and then it makes a move that makes no sense to anybody. It puts uh, it puts one of the you know what whatever you call the things on a completely odd place on the playing field, and then only quite a lot later do they realize that it was ingenious. And that's where you you say, okay, so we have something here which is just doing repetition of algorithms, but it looks like fine art, it looks like an artistic move that it did. But then if you go into what happens in our brain and you go lower and lower into what exactly is happening, we're doing the same. We just have these nerve, nerve fibers. We're just repeating the same few algorithms again and again, and art comes out of it sometimes. Another technology growing exponentially and which is fueled by artificial intelligence is Internet of Things. And uh, talking to people, I have the impression that uh, they underestimate uh, the impact and the size of this industry and uh, how much this is going to transform the way we live. Yeah, there's a trilogy, and I write about that in the book. There's a trilogy of technologies that's very important. That's big data, Internet of Things, and artificial intelligence. Because artificial intelligence... There's no use unless it has data. So data can come from many places. If you play Go, of course, it's on the board. But in the real world, data needs to be picked up. And with the Internet of Things, we are developing all these devices that pick up data continuously from everywhere. Temperature, movement, pressure, whatnot. And 
so the devices pick up the data, big data structures for organizing this data, and then you feed that to artificial intelligence, which can then feed the conclusions back in the big data and to the devices. And overall, it's like we're building an ecosystem. Like we have in ecological systems or plants and animals and bacteria and so on, our ecosystems, but we are building an electronic ecosystem where this is very important. But because we can connect much better than you can do in nature, we can create things that are much smarter eventually than you can do in nature. And there's, there's a lot of activity around the world in using artificial intelligence to understand things that were very hard to understand before. I am an investor. Uh, I'm just about to start a hedge fund, actually, but I also co-founded a venture fund. And when I went into the venture business, I thought, hmm, now I'm going into one of the few businesses that cannot be automated. How wrong I was. So soon after, I read about a company called Quit in California, and they had been asked by, by the magazine Business Week to find the 50 best, I think it was 50, 50 best uh, unlisted companies to invest in. And then Business Week would then look at the performance of these companies many years later. It turned out that, the, so, so Quid used artificial intelligence to pick them. And they have not disclosed everything they look for, but for instance, they looked at funding patterns. So if you, you got funding rounds very quickly, that was an indicator of success. If you were able to attract people or employees of a very high caliber from top universities, that was also and so on. If there were, you know, two founders better than one and it found all these different patterns that some of them prob- people probably knew about, but some of them it found and people didn't know, know about them. It turned out uh, in retrospect that the portfolio it put together would have been the second best venture portfolio ever made by a computer with artificial intelligence. And now my own company, we are working on deploying artificial intelligence on a database of 650,000 unlisted companies to find out, first, just we get it to find out which companies are most promising, but then from that deduct which sectors are most promising. So we have a whole system where we combine artificial intelligence looking at that looking at the statistics of what top quartile venture funds have been investing in lately, and then crowdsourcing from experts with a timeline. And then we also are taking in what we call reviewers, who are normal people who swipe different tech stories about what whether they think when they think stuff will happen, whether they think it's important, and whether they think it's a big business opportunity. So in any case, official intelligence to me now is, is really important. It's something I work with. Absolutely. And there are two more technologies that many industries, and in particular my industry of origin, the luxury industry, looks at with great interest. And they are virtual and augmented reality. And by the way, I know that as an investor, you predicted 10 years ago that the luxury industry was one to invest in. And boy, were you right. That has been that's been good for me. I, I tend to do what I what I say, but that's that's another that's another matter. So uh, augmented and virtual reality uh, both have implications in, in entertainment, but also a lot in business. If you imagine one scenario is that you have to build or build a house or make interior decoration in a house, 
and that you just put on these glasses or use your phone. You, you are looking through your phone and then you see the room and then you can just uh, see it decorated in different ways and uh, walk around and feel how it, how it will feel. That has such big commercial promise that it for sure will steam ahead and change a lot of things. I would love to... Well, I, I, actually, I, I have been building houses and, 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 and reorganizing houses quite a lot. I would love to be able to very easily have a walkthrough with different scenarios. They, they could be presented to me by a company, by an architect and a designer or by artificial intelligence before I decide anything. And given the pace at which these technologies grow, I can see it happening very soon. Lars, to conclude, your book is filled with uh, 50 super trends and, uh, and they range, as we said before, from artificial intelligence uh, to genomics, uh, from healthcare to uh, farming. And it would be impossible to discuss all of them today. But uh, it, there is something that uh, towards the end of the book, a template for lasting innovation to happen, which I found extremely interesting and, and that I would love you to explain to our listeners today and that this template is made of five steps or five pillars if you will and they are a decentralized network of numerous small units local and international trade competition the creation and exchange of information through a common language code and stimulants of change so those are the five ingredients for lasting innovation to keep happening. Would you like to elaborate on those? Yeah, I wrote this book called The Creative Society. So this is not the one we're talking about, but this is actually a quite big book. And I wrote it because I read a study that of all human innovation that has ever been listed in an encyclopedia. So it was going through 160s encyclopedia from around the world. And it showed that half of all human innovation took place in 0.2% of our land mass. And so I thought it was very important to find out what is different in, in that part, those parts of the world and the rest of the world. For a long time, it was uh, 10% of Western Europe. And then from there, it spread out to the areas that were colonized or populated by people that came from Western Europe. And I found that that area, which was so hyper innovative for 500 years, was the city-state area. And so at one point, Europe consisted of about 5,000 city-states. For a longer time, it was closer to 1,000 city-states. We still have remnants of that. We have Liechtenstein and San Santorino and uh, all these uh, mini-mini-states, the Vatican and so on. But if you imagine Europe consisting of almost nothing, but that's how it was for a while. And that that happened in a band that's, that included northern Italy, the uh, Switzerland, Eastern France, all of what is now Germany, and going into the north, also Friesland, you know, Holland, and so on. And uh, by the way, Switzerland is a bit of a remnant because Switzerland is actually a patchwork of almost independent uh, cantons. So it turns out that small units that compete and cooperate in ever-shifting patterns become very innovative. They need to have some standards of measure and standards of payments. They need to be able to pay each other, you know, with, without difficulty. It's, it's super useful if they have some standard, you know, for instance, the, the amphora in the old Roman Empire was a standard unit of size of, of a liquid and so on. 
and they you need to be able to record measures of success. For instance, a patent is recording a measure of success and to record the ownership of that. So, of course, business consists of millions of entities that are cooperating and competing and in, in shifting patterns. Business work far better if you have free trade areas and if you have some standards like a, a plug-in for, for phones and so on are standardized. But where you have on these platforms, you can innovate a lot. So I'm going through that. So I, I mentioned it uh, quite briefly in, in the Supertrans book, and I absolutely go through it in enormous detail in this book, The Creative Society. Not taken. It's on my reading list now. To conclude, I'd like to refer to a conversation you wrote about in the book you had with the founder of Saxo Bank, who believes that the technological innovations we spoke about today will lead to mass unemployment, whereas you think exactly the opposite. So my last question for you today is, are we heading towards a world with more or fewer jobs for people? There's been this belief that this would that that technology would lead to unemployment is very very old, and the first uh, scientist who explained why it doesn't happen was uh, Leo Say, was a, a French uh, economist, and what he described is now called Say's law, and he just says that technology since technology makes some producers more efficient, it frees up money, and with that money they need to go out and buy some stuff, or they will buy some stuff, so it just creates markets for new things. Right now, I'm sitting in a chalet in Verbier, in ski in a ski area. Well, you know, <laughs> my grandparents didn't know anything about going to ski areas or ski lifts. So before this, here there were farmers here, and not many. But now it's packed with people because skiing is a big industry. So we just keep doing that. So I think there's no indication at all that technology will will mean that we will have a shortage of jobs. We'll just have different jobs. I certainly hope so. Lars Twede, thank you for being on Lax and Tech. It was a pleasure. Take care. If you enjoy this content, remember to subscribe to our podcast so you won't miss any of our weekly interviews with world's experts in the fields that are shaping the world we live in. You can also help us grow the podcast by sharing it with the people who need to hear it and by leaving a positive comment on the platform you use. I truly appreciate it. See you next week.